Hello, everybody. I'm Radio Johnny, and you're listening to Recovery Radio on KRFP 90.3 FM in Moscow, Pullman. Recovery Radio is recorded live at the Leitah Recovery Center. Well, not today, but that's located at 531 South Main Street in Moscow. You can contact the LRC by phone at 208-883-1045 or by email at LeitahRecoveryCenter at gmail.com. You can find them on the web at LeitahRecoveryCenter.org and on Facebook. Recovery Radio's purpose is to share with our community how addiction and behavioral health disorders affect us all and how we deal with them. We also share the personal stories of people in and around recovery, highlighting their experience, insight, and hope for continued recovery. And like I said earlier, I am Radio Johnny, and not in the conference room, but way across the country in Boston is uh, Mark Lippman, my guest today. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Johnny. Good to be here. Actually, afternoon for you. Yes, yes. I was trying to play along. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Perfect. It worked well. Well, Mark, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our listening audience? Uh, tell them a little bit about yourself, and uh, we'll go on from there. Yeah, so um, I am. I live in Boston. I've lived in Boston my whole life. I am a licensed mental health clinician. Um, I've been doing that for about 15 years, um, and um, I am also a songwriter, singer-songwriter, so I record music and perform around Boston as well. So, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I, a lot of my um, work that I've done in hospitals um, with um, a lot of different types of, of people dealing with a lot of different types of things, a lot of group work as well, as well as individual work. So, but I've worked in um, dual diagnosis units and partials and detox units. And um, I've worked with people with different uh, psychosis presentations and experiences and all sorts of things. So, Wow. That's a big swath of just about everything. Uh, what was what is your uh, educational background? Where did you study, et cetera? Um, yeah, I started out um, in college. I was at, at uh, Brandeis, I studied uh, psychology there and art and anthropology and poetry. And I also, I went to Leslie for expressive therapy. So I, I knew that when I was, when I was graduating college, I was like, well, I, I don't want to do this or that or this or that. I, I guess the only thing that I would be okay doing besides just, you know, trying to be a musician is um, do expressive therapy. So I applied to Leslie, I got in and and that was really where I, I was, I learned a lot about, you know, therapy, of course, and also a lot about myself. That was sort of during mid, mid, mid Leslie grad school, I, I ended up having my own kind of behavioral health crisis, mental health crisis. And I ended up actually just very luckily being in an arts therapy program, a creative arts therapy program, so that I had taken a, a semester off to to just kind of like get my bearings. And when I went back into school for my second year, I I started the first course I had was an arts arts therapy studio class, which the only purpose of this class was to literally just be in the studio and make art about 
my uh, my journey, my process, my emotions, and just get it all out there. So it was really a lucky thing to have sort of just gone through this extremely profoundly intense like life. I don't know. Uh, it's sort of you know uh, shattered all of the illusions right about what life was in a very short period of time, and to come back from that and to be like, oh, I get to I get to process this through the arts. So I would say that you know my my educational background includes very much you know uh, lived experience of um, what I call you know a spiritual awakening and an existential crisis. Spiritual awakening followed by an existential crisis. <laughs> yeah, that's funny yeah. because when when you put it that way, it's it's usually I'm a AA person. And uh, usually uh, in AA, it's an existential crisis followed by a spiritual waking, not hey! the other way around. <laughs> not the other way around. <laughs> but, uh, you yeah. know, that's what happens with uh, somebody who's probably a normal temperate drinker. But, yeah, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. And, and uh, let's see, you called the, the therapy. Expressive. Yeah, expressive, expressive arts therapy. Expressive arts therapy. Uh, is that something that you uh, use in your practice today? I do use it in, in my work, yeah. Um, so I, I have currently I have a private practice. That private practice is, is mainly I use narrative therapy, which I also think is extremely cool. Very, very cool work um, to learn how to tell our stories, right, and to take ownership of being the narrator of our own story and um, – how much that can help with uh, recovery. And I, I use uh, music in, in working in hospitals. I use a lot of music, a lot of art. The way I think of it is it's just like it helps people to, to get a, the more perspective we have, I feel like the more parts of our brain are accessed, the more problem solving, you know, ability we have because we're accessing different parts of our brain. We're seeing things from different angles that we didn't see that before because we weren't, you know, expressing it this way. So anything that helps to someone to express what is happening on the inside and getting it out of their body so that they can see it or experience it in a way that's, that's not just stuck on the inside of their nervous system is, is a benefit. And, you know, it's just as beneficial to to talk right but the but the thing about expressive therapies is that sometimes there's no one tool that's going to work all the time so talking isn't always going to work so what do we do when it doesn't work you know um, or what can we do in other ways to help move the processing forward um, at even a faster pace so if i'm understanding this within a tiniest bit the concept is that if you can get it out in front of you, uh, so to speak, in spoken words, uh, you can deal with it as opposed to, you know, a lot of uh, people I know in recovery from addictions uh, will bury that stuff uh, somewhere in their mind or rationalize it away as being insignificant. So bringing it out, coaxing it out through this uh therapy you're talking about, you know, actually helps people put it down on paper, so to speak, to be able to look at it. Yeah. 
and and it it doesn't necessarily even have to be on paper because it could be it could be art right and right. you could see it once it's out there. You could see it differently. You could see it, experience it in a different way that you haven't before, right? I think a lot of times our inner process, right? Um, our, our nervous system has this way of wanting to sometimes just like stay the same, right? It just, it just, it just doesn't like change. It just wants to stay the way things are. If we, if we allow it to, it, it will do whatever it can, right, to, to, make sure that it doesn't change <laughs> in some ways, right? There's, right, a, right? there's a part of us, there's an inner critic that just kind of like, you know, or a bully or whatever it is, or so many ways of talking about it, but that, that tries to keep things the way they are because it's afraid that, you know, change means, you know, something uh, scary, right? Right, right. So um, I, I uh, uh, you know, with, with people who are addicted, the fear of withdrawal symptoms can keep somebody going long past the point where they honestly realize that whatever they're doing could be killing them or might be killing them. Yeah. The brain protects us from a lot of things. I've, I've been in uh, car accidents where I remember moments before the accident and then significant time afterwards uh, where I never lost consciousness. I was told, but I have no recall of the event. And I've been told that's just the mind's way of protecting you from that trauma. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's a a built-in important piece of our, uh, our being, uh, because, you know, if we didn't have that, we'd probably be bombarded by our own nerves <laughs> right right you know and not and not have a way to integrate it right so our body kind of protects us until we have a way to integrate it and the cool thing about i think about like the any sort of like art modality artistic modality whether it's music or dance or whatever it is is that it allows our body to it allows us to to just take in what's happening in a way that it sort of bypasses that inner critic or that inner part of us that is so protective. It bypasses it, right? So that suddenly I'm, I'm allowing myself to express something in a safe way on paper, you know, when I'm ready. But if I can do that, then suddenly I'm looking at something that slipped past that protective part and, I, and I'm able to, you know, in, in a safe space, right? <laughs> These are all right. things that, you know, are hopefully available to us is that we're, we're safe and we're supported. But when that happens, we're able to integrate it in a different way. We're able to take in a new piece of information beyond that, that part of our nervous system that is protecting us from seeing mm-hmm. what's happening. Because as we know, that part of our nervous system uh, isn't always doing us a favor. Right, right. You know? right. It thinks it is. It, I mean, it, it thinks it is. It's probably even like related to that reptilian uh, part of the brain that uh, has that fight or flight instinct that, despite our best efforts, is nearly impossible to overcome. Yep. Yeah. You know, what, what you're talking about uh, reminds me of a book. Uh, called The Body Keeps the Score by, uh, it's Bissell van der Kolk. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but uh, 
yeah, kind of relates to what we're talking about. It's an interesting book. I just mentioned it so the listeners, if they're they want to dive deep into that, they can they can go check that out. The body keeps the score. Now, when dealing with uh, trauma, I've discovered there's there's different types of trauma. You know, there's like big T and little T. You've probably heard that expression. You know, the big mm-hmm. T is the the car wreck, the divorce your parents went through when you were little and then there's uh, the little t the uh, the mean girls at school uh, things like that how how do you work with people through those type of uh, traumas because i know traumas seems to be almost the base of everything yeah <laughs> well i mean it really depends on who i'm working with so if i'm if i'm using uh, I, I like thinking about things in terms of like uh, narrative therapy, uh, narrative, you know, narrative health, right? Our our capacity to identify our own, the story that we're telling ourselves, the story that we're living, and being able to make changes around it. So a lot of times, you know, our stories that we tell ourselves are influenced by experiences, right? That we've had. So traumas, things that people have told us, you know, that have been distressing and disempowering, you know, sort of carry along. We carry those stories along with us. And unless we have anything that challenges that, it's just going to, that we're going to keep living that story. So, you know, working with people in a narrative way is, is, is really one of the keys for me. Is, is helping someone identify these uh, themes in their life. Like they, they might be talking about anger and how it, it interferes with their ability to, to be vulnerable, right? So you know, I might pick, pick up on that and check in with them about, is this kind of, does this make sense, right? That this might be a story. What other times in your life has this has anger interfered with your ability to be vulnerable? You know, so you start kind of like picking up on these stories. They might have other stories. And then you ask something like, you know, what, are there times where anger hasn't interfered? Right. And so then you look at those stories and you see like, well, what does that mean? If, 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 if you have had experiences where this isn't true, like, what does that say? Right just to help someone discover that the stories that we tell ourselves as true and the only story aren't always accurate. So that's, that's some of what I do in terms of like just dispelling some of the stories, right? I have to do that with myself too. So I, a lot of what I do in therapy, I just do with myself, like in my life. Um, I don't really like to approach kind of like helping someone unless I've, I've kind of done it for myself at least in some capacity, so that I understand how it works. Just uh, dispelling beliefs has been a huge, huge part of my just personal growth, and it will continue to be. <laughs> sure. Right, right, right. And and I I totally get that. In AA, we do a thing called a four step, where we take a uh, moral inventory of ourselves, and not unlike what you're talking about, we put down. Uh, we put down resentments that we have, and we try to discover what they're tied to. And it, ter- it works out for quite a few of them. Uh, it works out to being t- 
tied to a fear of something. So that that dialogue that we have in our head of, well, I don't like this guy because he knows about my my extramarital affair and he's going to tell my wife and I think he's after my wife and this whole crazy snowball effect that goes up that is just, you know, driven by fear. I mentioned earlier, I said, put it down on paper. Well, that's, we put it, literally put it down on paper to look yeah. at it from, like you said, a different perspective in that way. And once we go through that process, we, we share that with another person. And there's not too different from what you're describing, you know, the narrative uh, therapy. And we bounce it off the other person. And, and it, my experience has been when it comes out, like loses power. I lose the fear of it. I just, I come to be able to accept it as just something that's happening, not yeah. something that's just happening to me. Right. It's almost like, you know, I think, I think of like um, these, these stories or these narratives are like jumbling around inside of us. And if we can't see them, they're going to just run the show, right? They're sort of like the man behind the curtain, but as soon as I can identify what it is, it's almost like I'm holding it in my hand. It no longer has control over me because I understand it. I can grasp it. And that's a really powerful stance. It changes the, changes the power dynamic, right? Where suddenly it's like, oh, I can see you now. You know, you're no longer in the dark. So, yeah, it's very valuable, I find. And I like the, the, what you're saying about sharing it with somebody you know i think just the the aspect of community where people get to be vulnerable with each other and just hold space right is completely invaluable i mean and and i can't really under i can't really explain why i just know you know yeah i i know that being able to you know share with somebody you know sure i mean i i, I see a therapist you know therapy works you know, very well for me in that way. But even just like being a part of a community, you know, of uh, friends that we can hold space for each other and be honest with each other and know that we're, we, we care about each other because these things that we go through and these things that we are struggling with are filled with so much, you know, shame and, and guilt and to be able to express something and then, have it not end in rejection mm -hmm. completely changes the story of um, the, the, the narrative that, you know, that I tell myself in my head that like, if I share this thing, this person's going to reject me. Right. I need to be loved by everybody. So yeah, if, if they see my warts, yeah, they're, they're not going to love me. Yeah. And that's, and, the, and that's a big thing in AA, you know, we sit around in a big circle in a meeting and people share some of their darkest stuff and we don't cross talk to them. We let them get it out. And, you know, a lot of us nod our heads and say, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I've been there, done that. And shifting gears a little bit, uh, but not too far mm -hmm. because we're talking about groups. Now you work with groups as well or have worked with groups as well. Mm -hmm. um, what does, mm -hmm. what does that look like? The thing I love about groups is it can be so many different things, right? Like, cause you have a group of people together, the, the possibilities are really endless. 
over the years, I've just done a lot of hospital work, working with groups. I've also done a lot of different trainings through groups, like um, something called psychodrama is a phenomenal action method and with like theoretical, you know, underpinnings. It's just like an, it's an unbelievable um, uh, tool. And uh, all, you know, for me, a lot of the training was group based. Um, so I kind of, you know, bring the spirit of that into groups with me. But over the years, I've just kind of developed my own style. One of the things that I have done in groups is it really started with working in the the detox unit in one of the hospitals I've worked at. I don't work there anymore, but I just realized in, a number of years ago, I guess the beginning of the pandemic, there was just something about I, I would go there and I sort of would just realize, wow, like I feel like ritual would probably be helpful. Something like familiar and reliable and, you know, something that people like could, you know, expect, come to expect. So I, I developed uh, this kind of check-in process and it included a check-out process. It was all like a built-in beginning and an ending. And for like three or four years, I did it every single group. And basically what it was, was two pieces of paper. <laughs> uh, one that says, one that's, uh, what is it you want to um, hold on to in your life or keep or grow more of, you know, develop more of. And the other piece is one one thing that you something you want to let go of or say goodbye to or leave behind or and we they'd get a chance, everyone would get a chance to in silence at the beginning of group just sit there and think about it. Right. So there's this like silent contemplation, um, which was a really lovely piece of the whole thing. And then we would, you know, one by one go around, share what we want to hold on to, and then put it in our pocket. So symbolically holding on to it, or of course, some people would like stick it to their forehead or you know, put it in their sock. The other was, you know, what do you want to let go of? So I would have a, a trash can in the middle of the room and I called it the sacred container. <laughs> and, you know, and they would get to throw it out and or rip it up, crumple it up, whatever, and throw it in the trash and say something to it if they wanted to as they threw it in the trash. And and it's just sort of something that I just kind of developed. I'd done similar things. I just kind of pulled from what I'd experienced before and developed this ritual. And I did it every single time, like twice a week. And whatever we did in the middle of group, we, we sort of would process people get a chance to talk about, you know, air out some stuff that they, they either held on to or let go of. Or sometimes that would lead to a discussion. Sometimes people would want, you know, I would bring songs um, that are recovery based, you know, themes and I would sing those, you know, play guitar and we would talk about the lyrics. People would share their stories. Um, sometimes it was um, people just needed like meditation, like time to just kind of zone out or they wanted the meditation to really practice mindfulness. So I would play some background music, some really, really relaxing, you know, meditative background music on my guitar. I would hum a little bit and I would guide them through just simple breathing, grounding exercise that took about 10 or 15 minutes. And then by the time all that was over, group was over, you know, we would do the closing and the closing was what's one thing you want to do going back to what we let go of or held on to? What's one thing you can do today that would help you to hold on or let go? 
it just worked. I don't know. I, I wasn't expecting to do it for like three years. <laughs> I just kind of like was like, well, it seems like this might be helpful. And I, I kept, I always said, you know, we'll just do it until it doesn't work anymore. And you've gotten some pretty good feedback on that. I got a lot of good feedback. Yeah. People, people really, really enjoyed the process um, because I think it just made people feel safe because no one had to share anything. Right. I wasn't telling people I'm going to collect these notes, you know, <laughs> or uh, you have to say what it is. Nothing at all. Like people weren't weren't forced to do it. They weren't even forced to do that. You know, they could just sit there and, and, and watch and listen. So, yeah, I think part of the part of the process of groups is like sometimes these people just don't know each other or they do know each other and they don't like each other. And they, yet they have to be in the same small, small, small unit together and uh how do we just let people be right i'm sure that their lives outside of that unit are on their minds and a lot of the stories that i heard it was sounded like hell literally so like i was just like you don't have to do anything <laughs> like, uh, but i would provide a ritual and people just really liked that because people felt safe cool you know what i think it's a good time to take a break. You referenced that you do some music during these things, and uh, I want to play a song you uh, just recently wrote. I don't think it's out in the air yet. Um, Not so yet. I'm working on a new album. So this may be uh, the first time for people to hear it. Um, so we're going to play that, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk a little bit more, and I think I want to See if we can focus on uh, the addiction aspect of things and uh, working cool. with that. This this song is about that detox unit too. Like uh, not all oh, about that. Cool. It's about me too, but it's about them as well. So all right. All right. So here we go. Here's Mark Lipman <laughs> and Neverland. Neverland 
Somewhere off in the corner All too near and familiar A twist of light reveals a sinister grin He slipped on through in the bottom All he needs is a sliver What did they tell you about vigilance? Now the test begins The spotlight rests upon him Everyone sucks in their baiting breath It's no use now, boy I'll track my miles to find you And when I do, it'll be your death Cause I'm the shadowed glove You keep trying to sever But it's the only one you got The last bit of your command And you can throw in your life your life keep you clever with me ever on your back never going back no look in my eyes and see them play there was a time we were And we are back. That was Neverland by 
my guest, Mark Lipman. And uh, wow, that's uh, that's quite a tune there, Mark. Uh, is this uh, kind of emblematic of uh, your 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 genre, your musical uh, history? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like I I write, you know, folk folk music. Uh, I like telling a story. So yeah, this was this was kind of a um, along those lines, and and then uh, it, it was it was a bit different. I mean, I think in this you know next iteration or this next uh, layer of the onion that I'm peeling with my music, it's um it's kind of like a focus on relationships with with just men, like um, and what that looks like and what that is. I. I I I haven't experienced a lot of um, music that's specifically like geared towards that, or a lot of content that's specifically geared towards that. I think it's there's certainly stuff out there for sure, but um, but I kind of want to explore it. I want I want to create language, um, uh, a space for language in an area where there isn't a, right. a space for it, you know. So in that way, it is new, you know. It's it's. A new, new, new to you, new, new, mm-hmm. uh, new, new avenue. You're you're starting to travel down. Yeah, that's yeah. very cool. Yeah, it's funny when you say you know, men talking to men. We have one uh, AA group here that's that's a men's group. There's also a women's only group. The uh, feeling of the meeting is is quite different. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I I think alcoholics like me really have trouble you know developing healthy relationships with men drinking beer and watching football you know you can have a kind of a relationship on that level but what happens when you sober up and you know you want to talk about serious things i think it's hard for men to go there especially if men like me who uh Mm -hmm. you know for so many years uh, you know, use manipulation to get what I wanted from people, you know, just friendship. You know, I couldn't just be a friend. I had to be your best friend. And, you know, that <laughs> sort of madness that goes along with that. So, yeah. uh, yeah, nah, that's, I think, I think you're heading down an interesting path. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it is personally like, again, it's like, a, yes, uh, hopefully it's, it's helpful to people. Right. Um, it's helpful to people to have stories that maybe don't exist out there. Right. Or um, that aren't common, um, but that depict, you know, or give examples of something that's possible. Right. Or whether it's uh, whether it's something like presents some sort of resolution. Right. Or whether it presents just some sort of like struggle, because it can be really validating to hear that somebody else is struggling also. You right, know, right. <laughs> you don't have you don't have to only hear solutions, right? It's like, no, like I need to hear that somebody else is like really struggling. Also, that can be extremely helpful. So. Right, exactly. Well, and that's for me. That's what AA is all about. I hear the struggle. We we share what we call a common solution, but that common solution looks a little bit different, you know, to everybody else. But mm-hmm. yeah, to uh, to have a, a struggle voiced out where somebody can say, Ooh, maybe I'm like that too. And, and develop a desire to go down that road uh, and see where it leads. Maybe deal with something that, uh, 
you know, we talked about it earlier, go to that, that closet in your brain and, you know, crack the door open and take a peek in before it blows up and, you know, messes up everything. I wanted to uh, touch bases with you a little bit uh, more specifically on uh, working with people with addictions, chemical dependency, alcohol, drugs, whatever, um, because that's, I mean, it's, I know uh, the fentanyl crisis is is got to be insane back on the East Coast in the metro area. Uh, I know from talking to friends of mine that people were addicted to heroin at very young ages back there just because of the, you know, urban blight and uh, the tough times, tough living in those big city areas. Do you deal with people like in all phases of recovery? And what I mean by that is, you know, you have the pre-contemplative, you know, contemplative, and then actually, you know, people diving in. What is your experience around that type of helping people? So in terms of working in hospitals, I mean, most of the population that is dealing with addiction is more like they they are in most, I would say, you know, that I came into contact with and the units that I was on were people who had relapsed, right? The, and, you know, of course that can be, they could be anywhere in there too, like at any moment, right? Like in terms of pre-contemplative or contemplative or anything in the, so that was really the, the detox unit when, and I described the, the ritual kind of that I was using and the meditative, I, I did a lot of meditation because it really seemed like people's nervous systems just needed a break. And I thought that that was a valuable way to spend time and to help them kind of have a moment of peace for their nervous system. It's hard to say, I guess, for me, it's hard to say, like, it's hard to pin down, is someone in those groups, you know, do I sort of see them as pre-contemplative or contemplative? Because really, I'm not, I'm not really necessarily looking to, in those groups, like, identify that I'm just looking for a place to create a space for people to just talk mm -hmm. about whatever, right? Because it's, it's like the, the big thing I think about like addictions is that it's isolating, right? It's separating us from connecting. And so if someone is, you know, and these are just ideas but as you're asking the question, this is what I'm thinking about. It's like if someone is pre-contemplative and they're in a group and there are other people who are either pre-contemplative or contemplative or whatever, it's really good for everyone to be together because the whole point is that these addictions push us away from people, right? They protect us from being vulnerable because when we're vulnerable, we could get hurt. And in doing so, they, the addiction hurts us, right? The, that, that group in particular, I'm just, I just want people to be there no matter where they're at. And I let the, I let the group do the, the work, you know, in that way where like somebody shares something that somebody else agrees with or disagrees with and then and then they get to share and then people get to kind of like just we get to find our way to a place where we feel comfortable um, and we find hopefully some sort of common thread or common page right to be on you know no matter where we're at um, we get to just be where we are and that can be really healing in itself 
when you said, you know, to just give your nervous system a break. I remember early in recovery from me, I would be getting what I refer to as squirrely, just, you know, a bundle of nerves, uh, not knowing what to do next, trying not to think about drinking, which is all I could think about <laughs> is not drinking, don't drink, don't drink, which of course is thinking yeah. about drinking. Right. My sponsor said, well, just be where your hands are. Go, go wash some dishes. I washed dishes. I pulled dishes out of cabinets that were clean and washed them again. Uh, I, yeah. I scrubbed toilets to this day. My, my greatest therapy for being present is cleaning a toilet <laughs> because for me, toilet cleaning is very black and white. It is, or it isn't, you know, yeah. I will sit on it or I will not. <laughs> it's, so, uh, yeah, but it, it gave me a break from the noise that was going on in my head. You know, I don't know if I could, if that would be a practical modality. You're all, y'all yeah, do the right. toilet. And yeah. There's <laughs> your comet and your pummy stick and uh, make that thing shine. <laughs> it could be a real ego. Remember, if you well. don't want to sit on it, nobody else does. Right? That's right. That's right. But yeah, I mean, doing that in group, uh, it's, you know, again, I'm seeing so many parallels to you know, what goes on in, in AA, quite often somebody will suggest a topic for a meeting and there might be 20 people in a room, which is not a big meeting by city standards, but, you know, in a rural area like Moscow, Idaho, uh, that's a pretty good sized group. And someone will suggest a topic, maybe share a little bit on it and open it to the floor just for anyone to jump in. Not unusual to have a few minutes of silence. People contemplating what that means to them then maybe break out in shares and some people you know won't even share they just want to listen and and hear what's going on so yeah the group is the group is a is an important thing but you also do one-on-one uh, -on -one, don't you yeah i i do some one-on-one -on -one. so when i was working in in this hospital I just left this one hospital uh, in September, but when I was working there for about eight years, I would do some consults and, and, and there were times where, yeah, I was working with people in the detox unit to, to kind of provide or anywhere else, you know, there might've been somebody who was dealing with some sort of substance use issue. So yeah, there were times when I was, when I was doing one-on-one -on -one consults with those people, but in terms of my private practice, I didn't do, I haven't done a lot of working with addictions so it's mostly in the hospital that i was doing that but yeah yeah so so in your oh, private you you tend to lean more towards uh behavioral health um at this point i would say yes it was also because you know when i started my private practice i just wasn't taking insurance just because it was it was on it was a side thing i wasn't sure if i wanted to do insurance i Heard a lot of nightmares from other clinicians about taking insurance. So I was like, I don't know if I want to go that route, especially if it's just a small side thing that I'm doing. So yeah, yeah, I haven't I haven't taken insurance, and that kind of unfortunately that that really does narrow the population that I that I end up working with quite a bit. 
But I, I would imagine uh, that population that you're working with, uh, you know, those that can afford to see somebody on, on, on a private level, uh, probably really want to do the work as well. I yeah. mean, I can't, can't tell you how many people I know who have been to uh, rehabs, you know, the 28 day spin tries four and five times at the behest of family or maybe the court or, you know, some other external influence uh, that forced them to be there. And uh, uh, yet maybe they, you know, stayed sober uh, or behaved properly for a few months and then right back to where they were because wasn't really their idea. Yeah. I, you know, and, and that's sort of, that's, <laughs> I can say a lot about that because I, I feel like, for one thing, that's why I do groups the way that I do, you know, why it's, there's no, I'm not going to force you to do anything. You came to this room, <laughs> right? Right. you know, and then if you want to sit here and do nothing, you sit here and do nothing. You know, no, no one has to do anything that I'm telling you to do because I just don't think it works. I think that, you know, for me, I don't think it works very well to be told sort of forced to do something right. It might work for some people, but I, I really, I feel like the the way that I'm going about it is like if I'm trying to create a safe space where somebody's going to want to open up, if, if I come out of the gate telling them what to do, they've already been told what to do, right? They've already been like people's traumas, right? Are part of it is, is something happening to you that you did not choose, right? right? So like there are times when, in, in, you know, there's like a, a power dynamic or whatever, where you walk into a situation, you don't have control, right? And, and that can actually bring about those feelings, the traumatic feelings that you experienced before, right? And, and make things more difficult, you know, to, to heal, rather than allowing someone to develop a sense of trust, and from there, be able to uh, build safety, and then allow people to engage at their own of their own free will of their own volition because then if they can do that my sense is that i know that it works for for me so i don't know something magical happens then or i get to experience again like it's sort of like the narrative i get to experience a different story rather than the the old stories that you know were like you know forced upon me or right. things were forced upon me you were forced to believe them because of some sort of false narrative in your own head. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you have my life, you drink like me too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there, there's a great example of it. Yeah. Yeah. I can convince myself of darn near anything. Uh, yes. Rationalization uh, that goes on in an addict's head is absolutely amazing. You know, it's funny. I tell yes. men that I sponsor, I say, if you, uh, if you can come up with a good enough reason to drink, I'll buy, you know, I'll go with you. Just call me up and tell me what your rationale is. And we'll work through <laughs> it. I haven't had to buy a drink yet, but you know, there's always that chance out there. Oh man. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. Hey Mark, and you know what? We're, we're just about at the uh, end of the rainbow here. Thank you for, for your insight and uh, sharing uh, a little bit about what you do and how you do it. I'm sure this will help some people uh, maybe give them a little nudge to uh, 
pursue something like this, you know, in whatever area they're listening to this in. I want to give you a chance to uh, throw out uh, a little information on your mu- musicianship. I know you uh, people can link and, and, and buy your music. Where can they do that? Yeah, so um, my music is out there. It's, um, you can, first of all, you can go to my website, marklittmanmusic.com, um, and you'll find my music there along with other information. I am also on Bandcamp. Bandcamp is a great venue for, for getting music, local in, in, independent musicians, a lot of in, independent musicians on Bandcamp. It's a great platform. I'm on Spotify too. So yeah, lots of different places, but yeah, you can, you can, you can get my music and listen to it on my website too, which is marklittmanmusic.com. All right. And Lipman is L-I-P-M-A-N. Lipman. <laughs> yeah. Simple, simple. <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, listen, thank you very much. And uh, I'll wind the show up with my usual, you know, if you think you have a problem with substances or behavioral health, you do. Mm-hmm.